right. Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Jason. And this is Allie. We are pleased to have Dr. Robert McIntyre here with us, who is the Chief of General Surgery here at the University of Colorado Hospital. You guys may remember Dr. McIntyre's voice back from our episode on the second year and working in the ICU. We thank you very much, Dr. McIntyre, for coming back with us to put us in the hot seat for a mock interview. So with no further ado, I guess just to truly make this a mock interview, I may be sitting in your office waiting for you to come in. I may be brought into your office by one of the administrative support staff within the surgery department. And what I would say is we will look at each other. I would shake your hands while looking, shake your hand, not hands, not an awkward two-handed shake. Please don't do that, guys. Um, I would shake your hand while looking in your eye and say, hi, my name is Allie Halpert. Nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Robert McIntyre. Good to meet you. And then we would start our interview. So tell me how you came to decide to go into surgery as your career. So I'll go first. It's not really necessarily a unique answer, but certainly during medical school, I enjoyed the cerebral aspect of determining the appropriate diagnosis, determining the appropriate therapeutic approach to a variety of clinical scenarios. Uh, But then I realized that there is this other aspect of medicine that I didn't appreciate when I entered medical school, the kinesthetic side of medicine, where you have the opportunity with your own hands to dramatically alter the course of someone's medical care, uh, change their health, change their lives, and do so, you know, in, in a very rapid fashion frequently. Certainly surgery provides that. It's not the only opportunity, uh, but it is uh, one that I was drawn to. And experientially, uh, I realized during my clerkships that despite working long hours, even as a medical student, getting in the hospital frequently before 5 a.m., being there well into the evening, doing so six days a week, I loved absolutely every minute of it, and I realized that's where my passions lie. And then I think the question became general surgery versus, you know, another subspecialty of surgery or OB-GYN or something along those lines. And I think what I realized is that general surgery, you get a very broad uh, training to where you can handle a wide variety of, of, of clinical challenges. And because of that, you're involved frequently in the hospital uh, with such a wide variety of cases, at least in the diagnostic side, if not the actual therapy side. And so frequently general surgeons play a leadership role within the hospital. Uh, and that's not to take away from anything that the other subspecialties do. Certainly there's something to be said to be highly subspecialized in a field. But that was certainly where I saw my passion line was in that general surgery field where you're able to have your hands in a lot of different scenarios. This is Allie, and I'll answer the question next. So I went to medical school being the first person in my family in medicine did not exactly know what I was getting myself into. At UNC, we have this program throughout our preclinical years, the first and second year, where you get paired with a community physician. And in the small-ish town that I grew up in, I was paired with a OBGYN. And I would take call with him. I would go to the OR with him. I mean, I remember my first time scrubbing for a case was with him. And I was so excited to do all of this, which led me to want to be an OBGYN which is what I thought I wanted to do for the first two and a half years of medical school. And so I was like the president of the OBGYN interest group. I really thought that this is where I saw myself. But actually, in the middle of that, I did a an elective, or I received a scholarship to do an elective in Malawi with my mentor, who is still my mentor to this day, Dr. Charles, who's a trauma surgeon at UNC. And I went to Malawi with him. I observed a huge breadth of surgical care. I mean, we did imperforate anus kids. Like within their first five days of life, we performed procedures on these kids. 
Um, I remember being with my mentor in a specific procedure with a urogynecologist where the skills of the urogynecologist were no longer able to help the patient who was incredibly sick. And my mentor, who was a general surgeon, was able to take care of everything. So I still, for a long time, held on to the thought, I'm going to be an OBGYN. I'm going to be a GYN oncologist. There's a lot of surgery in that. I didn't like OB. Um, but I thought, GYN oncology, I can do that. So I go through my third year. I'm still thinking OBGYN. And then I do my surgery rotation second to last, not the place where you put it if you want to be a surgeon. And I did two weeks of surgical oncology and or four weeks of surgical oncology and two weeks of burn surgery. And I loved surgical oncology. I mean, it was all of the things about the big complex operations, the multidisciplinary cancer care that I thought I liked from GYN oncology. And then I loved burn. And I was like, why do I love this? It was just the critical care and taking care of those patients. I mean, any opportunity that I had, taking trauma call as a med student, I loved all of that. And so at the end of my third year of medical school, I said, I don't want to commit myself to something that I thought I wanted to do. I want to do what I actually want to do. And that is how I chose surgery. So, Jason, because you're sitting here interviewing for a surgery residency position, I, I know what you want to do for the next five to seven years. But if I were to meet you in 15 years and ask you what you're doing, tell me how your career has developed and what you're doing today. Hmm, interesting. So, as I envision it now, I think there's three tiers of my career that I hope to fulfill. First off, I think uh, from a practice standpoint, I'm most interested in uh, bariatric and MIS. Uh, I hope to practice in an academic center. I've enjoyed teaching. I had teaching positions as an undergraduate, as a teacher assistant, as a, and as a tutor. I think teaching is very fulfilling part of kind of your development as, a, uh, as an academic surgeon. And then the other thing is I also want to do research. I've been in, involved with research, uh, again, since undergrad as well as in medical school. And I think that if you have an academic mind, it's hard not to be drawn to research because you identify questions that remain unanswered and there's a desire to answer those questions. And so certainly that leads you to research questions that leads to research projects. And so those are kind of the three main things. And that means ultimately I hope to be in an academic center practicing bariatric surgery where I have clinical practice where I'm teaching residents and medical students and I'm also involved with research. And then there's this other aspect that I've been thinking about a lot and I'm, I'm curious to see how it works out in the end. But I'm very interested in being involved with my patient population outside the clinic. And I think that bariatric surgery provides an opportunity where you have a longitudinal experience with your patients, where you're kind of involved with this journey that they go on after surgery, whether that's being involved with simple stuff like couch to 5K type activities with your bariatric population, or simply going to educational opportunities where you're with the dietitians explaining uh, healthy living, healthy eating habits, that kind of thing. Uh, that's another component I'd like to include in my, in my practice as well. So, Allie, tell me what, what you envision for your career in, in the 15 to 20 year time frame. So 15 to 20 years from now, I don't know where I will be practicing. That's the one thing that I probably don't know. But I know that it will be an academic medical center somewhere. I will be a practicing surgical oncologist at this point in time. Now, you guys listening to the pod know that I probably wouldn't say that now, but that's definitely what I thought I wanted to be when I was interviewing. Now I'm more interested in thoracic because of my experiences. But anyway, so I will be a practicing surgical oncologist. I will be working at a major academic medical center. As far as my research career, 
you know, I'm not sure, Dr. McIntyre, I have had some experience with basic science and I've had some experience with clinical research to date as a medical student. I think that both are rewarding and kind of for different reasons. When you perform basic science, it's almost like solving a geometry proof. You know, one part of the equation you figure out and then you move on to the, how the next part of the mechanism works. And I find that very satisfying. But I do think that it takes a long time and you have to be very dedicated to that to make it happen. I also have enjoyed my clinical science experiences, and I don't think that you can truly practice without finding questions that you want to know the answer to. So I'm sure that whether I do basic science or not within my career, I will be performing some type of clinical research. I would also love to have a portion of my career be spent abroad cultivating relationships between my department and a surgical department in the developing world. That is something that made me want to become a surgeon, and it's something that I think that we need to do a better job of improving global surgery. And so I would like that to be part of my practice as well. Whether that's here in Colorado or back home in North Carolina, I think the journey will take me wherever it is. You, you both answered that you're interested in developing an academic career. So, Jason, I'd like to hear what you think an academic career means. Mm -hmm. I, I think I alluded to it a bit earlier, but I think it encompasses those those three aspects of someone who uh, an academic surgeon. So certainly a clinical practice that's that's evidence based as much as possible, meaning you're looking for the most up to date research. You're staying up with the literature as much as possible. And then on top of that, you're you're in a teaching role, either with residents or medical students, depending on what center you're at, uh, or you know you're looking for mentor-mentee opportunities as a faculty member, either identifying a mentor for yourself or men mentoring uh, junior faculty as you progress through your uh, your uh, surgical career. And then certainly, I think being involved with research, and that's something I didn't talk about earlier, whether that would be basic science or clinical research, and I'm still uh, I'm still thinking about that. I've been involved with both right now or in the past. Uh, I think there's certainly there's certainly advantages of doing uh, basic science and clinical research, but I think it somewhat depends on what center you're at, what your resources available to you are, uh, who your mentors are uh, that somewhat help guide you down in either direction. Certainly, I think I could be successful to either one, having had experience with both, but also your success is largely determined on who you have around you who can support those uh, those research interests. Yeah, so, a follow up question for you is is since you I want to make research one of the focuses of your career. Have you done anything during your education or training that is formally going to educate and train yourself to develop a research career? Mm -hmm. I would say first and foremost, my biochemistry degree largely helped. You know, it, it's where I developed the basic understandings of how you develop a scientific hypothesis, what answering a research question looks like. And then I began applying that into real scientific questions by working in a chemistry lab where we worked with pseudomonas cells, actually, or uh, pseudomonas strains, I mean, and began looking at the effects of various inorganic chemicals and the cystic fibrosis lung. And then in medical school, that progressed to uh, a bit less, a bit more direct medical questions, both on the clinical side, where I worked with a gastroenterologist looking at the effects of PTSD and stressful events in people's lives, such as military combat and the effects of IBD or the rates of IBD. And then I also worked at a pure basic science lab uh, where we answered questions about the familial components of anorexia nervosa and obsessive compulsive disorder. So I've had a diverse 
uh, experiential background when it comes to research. Uh, I wasn't quite as productive as I would have liked with those research experiences, but I think that also gives me a realistic expectation of the difficulties in research when it comes to the amount of time it takes to answer a question and that productivity of publications is not everything and that you have to really be involved with the question long term to see it through its uh, ultimate end. So, Ali, help help me understand what your definition of an academic career looks like. So, for me, an academic career means being at a teaching hospital. And it's hard to answer this question after listening to Jason. Maybe this illustrates kind of the group interview scenario also. But I do echo a lot of the things that Jason says. So part of being in an academic center is working collaboratively with different teams. So as a thoracic surgeon that's going to be working with pulmonologists, specifically in the lung transplant realm, when I'm my thoracic surgical oncologist, when I have that hat on, I'll be working with the medical oncologists, the radiation oncologists, and being in a large multidisciplinary cancer center. That's part of what being in an academic center will mean for me. Um, the research thing is a part of it as well, and I think I would answer the same way that Jason has, that my experiences to now have kind of made me understand what it means to devise a research question and have the understanding of how can I answer that question. Certainly that's something that I continue to try and get better at every day. Um, I still struggle with methodology and getting all of the right things done. Like I think that most of us do. Um, but I think that being able to perform academic research is part of it, but certainly education is another key piece of this, right? So as an academic attending, you have a group of residents, fellows, medical students, combinations of those um, with you all the time. And you're teaching the next group of people how to be a doctor and how to be a surgeon. And that's something that I think is incredibly rewarding. You know, I you may have read in my CV that I was a middle school teacher before I went to medical school. And that is something that is so incredibly challenging, but also so worthwhile when you've really given somebody this gift of knowledge and in our field skill. Can you, um, would you tell me about the research project you've been involved in and you're most proud of? Sure. So one of the research projects that I'm involved in, it's hard to choose because they are all very different. And so... Potentially, I could talk with you about one of my basic science projects that I'm excited about and then one of my clinical science projects that I'm excited about, just to kind of demonstrate also that I do have very varied interests. So from the clinical side, right now we're looking at does volume of hospital transplant volume, lung transplant volume, influence outcomes in patients who are bridged to transplantation with ACMO? extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for you guys that are listening. And good thing that this will be put out in a week because I'm presenting this in two days from now at a conference. So we look to see if center volume was able to ameliorate the hazard of bridge to transplant ECMO. If you think about patients who require ECMO prior to their lung transplant, they're certainly sicker. And so we wanted to know, do they have worse outcomes than those who don't require bridge to transplant ECMO? I would say that at baseline, you may guess that they would um, because of their different intrinsic diseases that have them placed on this trajectory. And 
we found that overall patients requiring bridge to transplant ECMO do have worse overall survival. This is important because there's a paucity of organs in transplantation. It's the limiting factor for all transplants. So we divided this by center volume and found that at high volume centers, if you require bridge to transplant ECMO, you actually have no increased hazard of death when compared to patients not requiring bridge to transplant ECMO in a propensity weighted model, which I think is pretty cool. So to me, that says, one, yes, go ahead, keep doing this, because if it's not like no ECMO, still okay outcome. We're putting patients on bridge to transplant ECMO that would otherwise die. And so we're saving these people's lives. And in addition to that, it's an, a responsible use of a scarce resource. So at these centers of expertise, we should be putting patients on bridge to transplant ECMO for a pulmonary failure. So that's a clinical project that I'm proud of. And then in terms of my basic science research, you know, that does move a little bit more slowly, Dr. McIntyre. I focus mostly on esophageal and lung cancer. And most recently, my biggest project has been within esophageal cancer. We've been studying a specific intracellular enzyme called secretory phospholipase A2 and what it actually does between cells. And it looks like the presence of secretory phospholipase A2, which is essentially an inflammatory enzyme, increases the progression of cells to cancer and actually makes their, when they are cancer, makes them more aggressive. And so we've been thinking, is there a way that we can block this? Could we use this in a mouse model? And it looks promising thus far for esophageal and lung cancer. So that's something I'm proud of too. Very different things. Both have mentioned that you're interested in educating medical students, residents, and fellows during your career. And Allie, we heard about your educational background, but Jason, I was wondering if there's any training you've received up to this point to help make you an effective educator as part of your career. I've actually, I was lucky enough to receive some training as an undergrad. I did a university organized uh, tutoring system in which part of the tutoring job is you would do, I'm forgetting how frequently we did it, but there would be a regular meeting in which they would have someone within the university system who was, their research was in education. They would come and talk to us about kind of the basics of education. That was kind of my first experience as education as a science. And I certainly learned a lot about uh, different approaches to education and also just how part of understanding education is understanding how we learn. And that was a big component of it as well, kind of the steps to how you take in new knowledge or how a student takes in new knowledge. Uh, so I learned a lot from that. But then just interacting with different students and realizing how different people can learn at different rates or learn in different ways, uh, certainly interesting. And I encounter that frequently with tutoring in that. You would have a conversation with one student and it seems like how you were explaining it would go over very well and they were digesting how you're explaining it very well. And then you would interact with another student and it would be like you were speaking another language. And so you would have to kind of learn on the fly or at least have other ways to explain it to them so that they can instill and take in the same experience or the same information. And then following that, I did I was a teacher assistant within the chemistry department. And I think from that experience, I learned that in order to teach, you really have to understand what you're explaining. You cannot. <laughs> When you when you go to teach something, you realize that there is another level of understanding that you have to have to teach something versus in order to understand and interpret that information as well. But I think both of those experiences were highly valuable when it comes to education. 
Yeah, the, the topic of mentorship has come up several times in the conversation. Um, Jason, is there a particular mentor during your time in medicine and surgery that comes to mind that helped influence your decisions about going into surgery or choosing bariatric and MIS? Uh, so the mentors I really looked up to in, in medical school, first and foremost, I think I had some incredible chief residents who provided an excellent example of educators, of good physicians, of how to interact with faculty as well. Uh, and I think all of those relationships play into the academic career. And then also the clerkship director uh, played a major role in me choosing to go into surgery. He was the consummate educator, someone who was able to handle difficult situations, and, well, at the same time able to sit down with you and have a discussion over you know some of the softer issues of medicine and, and certainly providing important career advice. So I still to this day try and uh, emulate those examples that I experienced as a medical student. Allie, do you have any mentor-mentee experiences that have been important in your development? Certainly. So before when I was talking about my experience in Malawi, so that was both a mentor and a mentee experience. So I had just finished my first year of medical school. I'm a fresh MS1, soon to be MS2. And I went on this trip to Malawi with the Department of Surgery. My mentor, Dr. Charles, was also the surgical clerkship director at that point in time. So it's us plus a Carolina undergraduate. So it's this really neat scholarship that I received that the undergraduate also received. He was interested in medicine. So I mentor him as the medical student. And then we're both mentored by our surgical attending and then the faculty who are there as well. One thing that I think was truly unique about it is that we were together both inside and outside of the hospital. And so we all knew each other very well and worked closely at all times while we were there. So we were in the operating room together, operating, and then we would go home and cook dinner together too. And that made for such a unique perspective on what it's like to be a surgeon, to know this person who I would have been terrified of just finishing my first year of medical school on a more personal level and hearing his stories and why he chose to be a surgeon was a big deal. Then when I chose at the end of my third year to do surgery, I was welcomed with open arms and then went back to Malawi a or a second time during my fourth year of medical school as well and was able to do more work, research and clinical work at that point in time. So he was a champion for me. I mean, throughout my entire medical school career, he wrote one of the letters of mine that's probably in the that folder in front of you right now. And if I'm saying this as Allie today, um, he's somebody who I still talk to about different ideas that I have, who I still talk to about what are things like at UNC, what what's it going to be like when I'm applying for a job. So I think that mentorship is so important, and it's honestly one of the reasons why Jason and I started this podcast, because I think that mentors, specifically in our tiny field, which may feel huge, but it, it isn't, are very important. Allie, let me uh, let me switch topics a little bit and ask you: Can you describe for me the most challenging situation you've encountered during your medical training? I want to hear how you dealt with it, and then looking backwards, uh, would you have done it differently? Thank you for that question. Always a tough question. Um, I think that there have been multiple tough situations. It's always difficult 
in the hospital, you see people who are at their most vulnerable. You see families, you see doctors who come at things with different perspectives. So one that has been particularly memorable for me has been taking care of a patient in the burn ICU who was involved in a very traumatic assault in which he was lit on fire and sustained a very significant burn and has been in the hospital for about the past year. And the thing that I have thought has been the difficult situation for this patient, and I'm answering this as a medical student. Clearly, I can answer this as a resident with a a lot of things, but I think it's harder as a medical student because sometimes you're slightly less involved. So when you're going to describe a situation, describe one that you truly were involved with. That's my side note for this. So um, for this patient, the family and the team of physicians, I felt like was arguing um, constantly. And as the medical student, you're the one who's there the earliest in the morning talking to the family for an hour before rounds start. And you're there in the afternoon talking to them. And so I kind of found myself as the liaison between the two teams. I would be part of the family meetings when they would have those as well. And I felt like the situation was difficult because I felt that the um, physicians who I admired very much were not doing a great job of explaining to the patient's family what was actually going on and what were realistic expectations for this patient. I felt like you know, there's this concept of shared decision making that I think we hear about a lot. And that was not going on. I felt like there was almost a patriarchal treatment of the family. And we're going to do this. And we're not really listening to what the family has to say, whether what the family's ideals of what were going on were realistic or not. I felt like the communication channel was very poor. And my knowledge and confidence at that point in time in my medical school career was not sufficient to answer those questions or be the bridge between the teams. Jason, uh, I want to hear about an experience that had where you actually made the biggest mistake in medicine. And looking back on that, what did you learn from that experience? So, Jason makes no mistakes. <laughs> Interestingly, as a uh, fourth year medical student, I realized how even the most mundane decisions or actions can have important consequences. So I was asked, uh, which is a very common request of medical students to go and remove a drain. This was a patient who was on Coumadin for a uh, blood clot and had a super therapeutic INR. And I think this exam, this, the, the experience demonstrates that you, you all, you think, you know, a lot, but you realize there's a lot you don't know. It's one that can be very simple. And so I went with a uh, a lower level medical student to pull the drain. And the initial goal was to have the other medical student pull the drain. I would kind of coach them through it since I had done this on several occasions in the past. And that medical student tried and was unable to because of a concern for too much uh, tension being required to remove it. I said, I-, I think I can do this. It usually just takes a little more force than you expect. And we had gone through all the appropriate steps to remove this. And I applied some more force and the drain came out. And not uncommonly, there was a little bit of bleeding after the drain came out. It wasn't obvious where the bleeding was coming from. But I said, that's okay. Just get a couple of four by fours. We'll hold pressure and the bleeding will stop. And we started with that. 
And after holding for a few minutes, it was still bleeding and bleeding more profusely than I would have expected. The nurse was there. The nurse got us some shocks. We held more pressure. Uh, the bleeding continued. At that point, I realized this was going different from as usual. And so at then we then attempted to contact the remainder of the team who were all in clinic, which at this hospital was a fair distance away. And during clinic, it can be challenging to get a hold of a senior level resident. Again, this only now only a matter of minutes or so have passed. It's not like this has been going on for hours by any means. All of this ongoing, the patient's still bleeding, becoming a bit concerned. The medical student who's lower than me in, in class, becoming very concerned. Uh, I start to feel the gravity of the situation. Eventually, we get a hold of a resident. They're able to come by. And the decision they made that I failed to is they put a, a, a sterile finger inside the side where the drain came out and actually held pressure on where the bleeding was coming from which I had failed to do. You know, I think if, if I were a resident going through this experience, it would have never been that concerning. But from the medical medical student perspective, it looked like the sky was falling and I was extremely uh, terrified of what had taken place. Uh, and I think the, the steps that fall, I think, were probably the most important uh, from that experience. And thankfully, the patient did not have a bad outcome. They did require a unit of blood and did require a trip to the ICU, uh, which is not at all what is supposed to happen after a drain removal. But I felt it was very important that I discuss with the patient after everything had been taken care of and apologize to the patient that it happened. And that patient was supposed to go home that day. The drain removal was supposed to be very benign. I explained to the patient exactly what happened and said that that was not at all supposed to take place and that I take full responsibility and I apologize, which was incredibly hard to do. And I think that my lesson, like I said, from that experience, first and foremost, is that Every decision we make in the hospital can have profound effects, no matter how big or small. And we always have to be ready, A, to call for help, and B, to realize what our own skills are and realize that it's not uncommon for us to be a little underwater in what our knowledge base is on how to handle a situation. And I think that it's also important, uh, probably more so important, that we admit faults when we make mistakes because we will, you will make mistakes as a resident, as a medical student, even as a human being, everyone makes mistakes. And that the first step to rectifying that mistake is admitting faults and having a frank conversation with the patient. Not a proud moment, but I certainly gained a lot of uh, insight from it. Howie, I've heard a lot about North Carolina. So I'm wondering why you're interested in the University of Colorado and what do you think that this Department of Surgery can do to help you achieve your academic goals? So... I think that the University of Colorado is spectacular for a lot of reasons. I think that the multidisciplinary cancer care that's provided here is fantastic. The fact that our chair of surgery is the head of the cancer center really means that surgical cancer care is a big focus of the cancer care that happens here in Colorado. So for those of you listening about me answering this question, I know something about the University of Colorado. You should know about the places that you're interviewing at because you will get asked this question. I do think that there is potentially some bias against people coming from one coast to the other coast. And I am happy to live in any place all over the country that affords me a great education and training. And I think that Colorado is that place. You know, one thing that I think makes Colorado so unique is the fact that we train in different places when we're part of the residency program here. So you're at a big academic medical center here in Aurora. And then we're also going to go to Denver Health and take care of 
level one trauma center patients, but also provide indigent care. And that's something that's also very important to me. You know, that's some, that's one of the reasons why I did teach for America. It's one of the reasons why I want to provide care abroad is taking care of at risk populations. So I think that the Denver health experience is something that really makes me want to come here. That experience is not available in North Carolina. And another thing is that if I do decide to move back to North Carolina one day, I want to have a wide variety of training. I think that it's important to go somewhere else and learn somewhere else's ways if I have any intention of going back one day, maybe as an attending. So I'm very serious about um, being a part of the residency program here. Is there any research that you did into the University of Colorado Department of Surgery about anything in particular that you viewed as a strength uh, that drew you to apply here? Sure. So for me specifically, like I said before, the fact that we have a huge multidisciplinary cancer center here. You know, if I'm interested in surgical oncology, one of the things that I might talk about or think about when answering this question is the volume of pancreatic surgery. For us, I know that there are four thoracic surgeons here and we perform a variety of um, complex cases. Also in our partnership with National Jewish, we take care of pulmonary patients here at the University of Colorado that are not really seen at other places. Like we take care of mycotic lung disease here that is not seen at other places across the country. So specifically knowing some of the strengths that Colorado or wherever X program is that you're interviewing is important. And then also having the community hospital experience is something that's not unique to Colorado, but it's one of a very few number of places in the country that's important. That's part of the training. Jason, tell me about what, what draws you to the University of Colorado. So when you, when you asked me earlier about my plans 15 to 20 years from now, I, I gave a confident answer and I have thought about that. But I also appreciate that there's also rea a good reality or a good chance that I would change my mind. You know, when I entered medical school, I said, I don't really know what I want to do, but I know I don't want to do surgery. And then I realized how wrong that determination was because it wasn't based on a misconception of what surgery is. And I think there's also a possibility that as I move through my experience as a resident, that I'll identify other areas of interest, uh, or I may be uh, validated in thinking that bariatrics is what I'm most interested in. But because of that reality, I think it's important that I go to a, a center that provides a large breadth of opportunities. And Ali certainly alluded to this fact that at CU, residents rotate through a coronary care center where you're on subspecialty services that do a high volume of very complicated cases that you don't see at every institution. But then at the same time, we go to Denver Health and you do bread and butter surgery and you do it in a population that has sometimes advanced pathology because of the socioeconomics surrounding that a medical condition. And even though this is such a center that has specific focused areas of care, we have met residents during the interview day today that are chief residents that say, I can go practice in a rural location and really know how to handle almost everything that comes at me. And I know that I can count on my attendings that have trained me. I can call them and ask for help. Like I know what to do in almost every situation. And that is important to me as well, that even though I want to be a specialist, I want to be well-trained and the people coming from here feel that they have been well-trained. Also, if you're interested in pediatric surgery, 
you should be talking about the children's hospital. I think that that's something that kind of goes without saying, but make this, make the answer to this question true to you and what you really do want out of a place. Like you, they're interviewing you, but you are also interviewing them. And it is important that the place where you end up can provide a foundation for you to do what you want to do. Allie's giving a pop-up video style interview yeah, in which sorry. she interjects with her yeah. experience as a resident. But going back to the, the concept of, of CU and, uh, just to kind of reiterate what Allie was talking. So ultimately what that means is regardless of what field I will decide on, like you were talking about, Allie, we would be well trained at this institution, regardless of what specialty I choose. There are some other aspects as well. There's certainly the opportunity to teach medical students. I think that's a very important part of my training that I want to be involved with. The opportunity for research, as I mentioned, I'm interested in academic medicine, academic surgery. And so the opportunity to do research as a resident is very important. And not every center provides that opportunity as resident. A combination of points contribute to my decision. I think C would be a perfect spot for me. So both of you have files sitting in front of me and they're full of information about uh, your your ability to do this residency program. But Jason, I'd like to hear something about you that I can't read in this file. Mm, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I would say that it, it probably gets lost in my CV, but something that I've found for whatever reason is something I enjoy doing is somewhat of setting my own path and being a bit of a trailblazer. I've been known to not necessarily just join an interest group that exists, but kind of just form my own interest group that I felt filled the gap in what was available or was more, it, it fit with a passion of mine that wasn't something currently available. And I wanted to see if other people shared that passion. So for example, when I was an undergraduate student, seeing in the news the effects of the obesity epidemic and seeing it firsthand living in Oklahoma of how people were struggling with this problem, I wanted to do what little I could as an undergrad to affect that. And so that meant I formed the, I think it was the Oklahoma Health and Fitness Group was the acronym we decided upon. And it was a very small goal. It was simply a matter of trying to get a bunch of students who were interested in health and fitness in the community to get together and try and set up some community events in which the surrounding neighborhoods around the campus could come and if they're interested, learn about healthier ways of living. Admittedly, I've had varying success being a trailblazer. It's much more challenging to start something on your own than necessarily take up the reins that someone else is on a path that someone else has paid for you. But at the same time, I think I feel like the unique challenge is enough to, to really drive my passion forward. Allie, I want you to tell me something about yourself that's not in your application. I actually think this is a very difficult question. So in terms of things that are not in my application, you know, I am the oldest of three kids. And I have a brother who's 12 years younger than I am. So I've always been in kind of a quasi leadership role within my family. That was never more true than when I was 14. My brother was two and my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I think that that moment right there is probably why I decided to go to medical school to begin with having no idea of what I wanted to do. And you can see along the way in my CV, maybe what it doesn't say is that I've done a lot of different things and I haven't always known exactly what I wanted to do. At some point in time, I thought I wanted to be a vet. I 
taught middle school for two years. I have all of these different experiences because I think that when I was 14, I made that decision that I wanted to be a doctor, but I was never quite sure. And then all of these things that I've done along the way, kind of wondering, could I do something else? Could I do something else? That's kind of the way that I've thought. And that that story is almost echoed by the fact that like, oh, I was going to be an OBGYN when I started medical school. And then I had the surgical experience. And then I ran from that for a while too, before coming back to this thing that I knew I wanted to do the whole time. So that's probably part of who I am that is not in my CV. So Allie, what do you think the University of Colorado can do to help you achieve your career goals? Hmm. I think that it's probably multiple things. So my career goals are I want to be a good surgeon, I want to be well-trained, and I want to be well-equipped for my career. So in terms of being well-trained, I see that your chiefs graduate with a very high number of cases. They have told me that they feel proficient at tackling almost everything that is thrown at them. Another thing that I think is important for me specifically is that I will be successful in a fellowship match. And you have chiefs that have recently graduated from your institution who have matched into fellowships that I'm interested in. In terms of mentorship, I know that Dr. Naylor talked today during the presentation about how each resident is paired with a faculty mentor. And I'm sure that I'll make additional ones along the way, whether it be through my clinical experiences or through research as well. The other part of this is, as Jason alluded to before, the five plus two with the research years in between. I think that that solid committed time where I'm performing research will be able to give me basically a chance ahead or like a good starting point for my academic career in the future with the things that I accomplished during those careers. So again, being well-trained by the program and having a foundation to start my academic career. Jason, do you have any questions about the training program or about the Department of Surgery itself? Yes. So I think, and I apologize if I missed this and and some of the information provided, but I'm certainly curious with this being a five plus two program, are there funding opportunities and, and is there time provided for residents to go and, and present at conferences to present their research work? Uh, well, certainly all of the residents that uh, come here are going to have a research experience. And yes, there is funding for residents to go into that two-year experience to do the work that they're interested in. And the department offers a, a lot of opportunities in different fields. We have some areas of expertise within the cardiac surgery lab. And as Allie mentioned earlier, there's an active thoracic surgery lab. Uh, the Trauma Research Center has a, a, a very active research group, and there's also a T32 training grant within that group to allow residents uh, to be trained in investigations within uh, trauma surgery. Uh, within our division in general surgery here, we have uh, an immunologist who's been working with some surgical residents looking at the effects of aging and alcohol and burn on immune response systems. Uh, but then we also have health outcomes research groups within the department for people that are uh, interested in, in doing outcomes types of research. And, and then lastly, we have a surgical investigator in the department that's doing some health services and health policy research. And 
the point is, is that there's lots of different opportunities and there's funding available for that. Uh, we've had residents present their work at regional, national, and even international meetings. And yes, the department provides funding for residents to go to meetings to present their work. Um, those types of uh, travel opportunities are extremely important because that allows the residents to network with trainees and faculty from other places, and, and that's really where the reward of doing all of the research comes from, and that is making connections with people around the country and, and even international colleagues. Thank you. Dr. McIntyre, just a few additional questions that I have about Colorado and you. Um, so one of the questions that I was told to ask and actually did give some good insight into the programs that I applied to for residency is, and specifically, I love asking this question of the program director, should you be interviewing with them? So Dr. McIntyre, what are you most proud of here at the University of Colorado? Well, the easiest and most obvious answer to that question is going to be very objective metrics of a residency program. How many cases do you do? How broad is the is the case content? How many hospitals do you rotate? What are the different types of hospitals? What are the different types of patients and uh, the different practice settings? And those are all really easy metrics to come up with for the University of Colorado. And I would tell you that here uh, we have a, an academic hospital, a county hospital, a VA, a children's hospital, and you do a very high volume of complex surgery, as well as your basic general surgical volume. And so I think our residents come out with a, a very high volume of a broad surgical uh, content. And then we've already talked about some of the research experience, and I think all of the residents get experience at teaching the medical students and their junior residents during their experience. But that's really not um, the best answer to that question. And um, to me, what I'm proud of is the culture of the Department of Surgery. Dr. Schulich has set a tone throughout the entire department, and it percolates down through division chiefs and into the individual faculty members and the relationships between the faculty and the residents. And it goes out to how we relate to our patients, but not only that, to the other medical specialties that we have to interact with. It inter and the staff that work within the Department of Surgery, the staff that works within the hospital, and then our community, not only locally in Denver, but also in the state, the Rocky Mountain region, and even the country. So what I would be most proud of here is really the culture of the department. And, um, you know, our departmental motto, really our vision is that we improve every life. And it, when you say that, the most obvious thing is that we improve patient lives. But I think we actually improve each other's life. We improve the life of the community we work within, the staff members in the Department of Surgery, uh, the emergency department who consults us, or the medicine service that asks us for assistance in managing surgical disease on the hospitalist service. It, it really means every person that we encounter that we're going to improve that life. And th that's really what the Department of Surgery at the University of Colorado is about. It's, it's the people here, and it's the culture that we have created that is the most important thing. 
So certainly in the news, there's all this discussion about Colorado growing like gangbusters and the same for Denver specifically. And I'm curious, I'm certain that's reflected in, in the Department of Surgery, but what are some expansions you anticipate over the next five years, if any, in, within the Department of Surgery? Well, we've had a tremendous amount of growth over the past five years. Um, University of Colorado Hospital has had significant growth in surgical volume that it ranges uh, in the 15 to 20% per year for the last five years in a row, such that here uh, the hospital is discussing uh, building a third inpatient uh, tower. Uh, the VA has just moved to the Anschutz Medical Campus um, and opened a brand new facility, which is a beautiful state-of-the-art VA hospital. And uh, certainly the program over there is growing uh, to afford a lot of opportunities to residents. Uh, Children's Hospital has just gone through a, a recent expansion, and uh, they similarly have had a lot of growth in their uh, patient volume and in their uh, academic program there. And lastly, Denver Health itself is also growing at a time when a lot of city and county public hospitals have been shrinking. The one here is actually expanding and growing to meet the needs of the patients uh, in the Denver metropolitan area. So I think the next five years is going to be uh, similar. It might not be at the same rate that it has been over the past five years, but certainly the projection is is that the the population here will continue to grow. And since we have been a growing market share across the city and uh, state, I think that our volumes in all of the hospitals that the residents work in are going to continue to grow at that same pace. All right. Well, I think with that, we'll wrap up the mock interview. Dr. McIntyre, thank you so much. Bef- Go ahead. I was going to say, can we debrief on some yeah, of the absolutely. things about like what you think we could answer better? Any things that came off as red flags or weird or... Does anything stand out in yeah. particular? No, I, I think both of you did a, a great job during the interview. I, I think uh, this may be my bias or my opinion. Surgeons tend to be very goal-oriented people. And I think it, an, a person who goes into an interview understanding what their goal is and how to obtain their goal, what are the steps necessary to get to that ultimate goal, are going to do much better in an interview than someone who comes in and isn't quite sure what it is that they're going after. Um, so that, that would be one point. I, I think that you, Ali, you made a particularly valuable thing, which is to do some research about the program that you're interviewing in, to have some specific questions about that institution and what it is that they do. If you're interested in research, look at the research programs within that department and identify a researcher there that you might be interested in working with. And sometimes, and then, sorry to interrupt you, but just so I don't forget, sometimes I think that if you can ask at the night before dinner if there's a resident, like let's say you really want to be a surgical oncologist and you meet Bobby at the night before dinner and you're talking to him about what his research is, then you actually have the foundation to go online and do some reading about what that lab actually does. Whereas it may be a little bit more nebulous to like look on the department website and find specific research opportunities. I don't know what you think about that, but. No, I think that's a very good idea. I that, that, 
falls into the last point I, I would make, which is that this is a two-way street. You feel as though, as a person who's being interviewed, is that as though you have to impress the person who's interviewing you so that you will be accepted into the program. But the opposite is also true, which is that you're going to invest five to seven years of your life, and you want to know that the institution that you're interested in is actually... Uh, interested in training you and helping you to achieve your your career goals. So don't think of it always as I got to be accepted into this program as why should I bother to come here? Because you're investing a tremendous amount of time, effort, emotional, as well as you, you mentioned physical effort into uh, this department. The department um, is going to give you something. It, but you're also going to get a lot out of it. And so think of it as a two-way street. I also, you know, I just, this again, just a personal opinion. There's plenty of great residency training programs around the country. Uh, they can give you the metrics of success that I, I talked about earlier. And some of it is going to boil down to a, a few little particular things here and there. I don't know that a lot of that will make a big difference in your career over the long run. I do think that the culture of the institution is is something that's really uh, important, but I also think it's it's really difficult to get that by spending a, a day at a at a department. So one of the things that you can think about during the interview process is to try to ferret out the culture of the institution and the department. One of the things that I recommend to people when I'm talking to people about interviewing for surgical residency programs is definitely see how the residents interact with each other and not only within the same residency class, but look and see if the senior residents are talking to the junior residents at the night before dinner. Because I do think that that gives you some idea of like how well people get along, what the culture actually is at this institution. Again, it's slightly harder to ferret out, especially if you have like a night before dinner that does not involve faculty, but ours specifically does. And to see people in out in the wild, out in their natural environment that isn't the hospital um, is really interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, this impromptu mock interview. We greatly appreciate your time. I think this was exactly what we were hoping for. And I was sweating bullets, honestly. Yeah, you made me realize I really got to go practice. <laughs> yeah, this was, uh, despite knowing some of the questions ahead of time was still pretty challenging. So guys, just don't stress. You're going to stumble a bit. You're going to mince your words a bit, but just. Wait, you just mentioned how stressed you were and now you're telling them not to stress. I know, exactly. Well, do, do <laughs> don't as I say, listen not to as Jason. <laughs> it's okay to be stressed out. Exactly. I think that the most important, uh, feedback that I would give to somebody interviewing is, be true to yourself. And that goes back to your point, Dr. McIntyre. Like you, you want to get something out of this and you need to give your real authentic story. Certainly there are ways of presenting yourself in a way that sounds very pleasing. Um, but ultimately you should be proud of what you have done that has gotten you up to this point. Everybody who interviews has a very impressive resume and also very different experiences. And that's what makes you special. So you should be proud of what you specifically have done and see how that translates into the place that you are interviewing at. So, so Jason, what do you do when you're stressed out? You prepare. Mm -hmm. And the point 
then is prepare for your interviews. Don't just go into them without thinking about all of the questions that we've discussed today. And there are lots of questions that people could ask uh, and discuss during the interviews that we didn't talk about today. But if you prepare, then you will be successful. And if you don't prepare yourself, then, then you likely will be stressed out. Yeah. The flip side to this story that I was talking to some medical students about last week is that sometimes by your 10th interview, it can sound a little bit difficult to be your authentic self. And so just try and go into like, I actually interviewed at Colorado last. It was the last place that I interviewed. So maybe I'd really practiced. Um, but you do kind of get into this spiel where you tell whatever story, whether it's why you chose to be a surgeon or whatever it is, um, that can sound a little bit rehearsed, but don't let that happen to you. Like try and bring the same excitement that you brought to your first interview to your last interview, because your last interview could be your home. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.